Well, good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. I'm Frank. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, please uh, don't run out super fast after the service. We'd love the chance to get to know you a little bit. Uh, A little bit of context. We're in the midst of a series looking at the one another commands in the gospel, and there will be an emphasis on relationship, on uh, unity, and on the gospel that enables sinners like us to have uh, beautiful, deep, and abiding relationships with people that is usually impossible with. And so this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6, but we'll be focusing on verses 4 to 6 and uh, looking at the command to live in harmony with one another. And if you can, uh, also turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be spending some time there as well. So let's read Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but uh, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come uh, this morning as sinners, as sinners who don't experience a lot of harmony in our lives. And Lord, as we look at your command uh, to live in harmony, we pray that you would open our eyes to see how your gospel enables us to do that. Lord, we ask that you would transform our hearts from a selfish uh, posture to a posture that reflects you, uh, that we might be conformed to your image and we might become like you. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. Show us the gospel and show us Jesus uh, and be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, harmony is hard to come by these days, isn't it? Everywhere we look, there seems to be disharmony. From the school board meeting on Tuesday uh, to the polarization of the nation on a number of issues, not to mention the comment threads online, right? But this is really nothing new. Disharmony has marked the human experience throughout the ages. Think back on what we know of ancient history. The ancient empires of the day seem to be always at war trying to extend their, uh, their empires against other world superpowers. And recent history isn't much better. World War I, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, the Cold War, the Iraq War, the War on Terror in both Iraq and Afghanistan, the war in Syria against ISIS, the war on drugs, the culture wars. How many wars do we have? It seems like everywhere we look, there's a war. And conflict is everywhere, and even if it isn't on the national or societal level, there's conflict on the personal level, too. We're sinners, and we mess up all the time. And that means we constantly have conflict interpersonally. 
and not so fun fact, interpersonal conflict among team members is the leading cause for missionaries leaving the mission field. And so, especially in Paul's time, if we go back to sort of the context of our passage, Greek Christians and Jewish Christians were often at odds because of their various sort of cultural sensibilities. Yet in the face of all of this conflict, Paul called upon Christians to live in harmony with one another. And when we get to a command like this, it's easy to get jaded and cynical and say something on, in, along the lines of, ah, that's pretty idealistic and it will never really actually happen. People are simply too sinful and too broken to see true unity come about. We have to wait for that to come. But this is the Bible. Right? This is the Bible, and so Paul and the Holy Spirit clearly have a plan to see harmony within the church. And so that's the question we're asking this morning. How does the gospel enable us to live in harmony with one another in the face of so much conflict and division? And as we work our way through verses 4 to 6, we'll hopefully first see uh, first the, the posture of the gospel, and then the power of the gospel And then finally, the praise of the gospel. So three Ps, posture, power, and praise. And so let's start first with verse 4 and the posture of the gospel. For whatever was written in former days was written for instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so in verse 4, Paul is really pointing at the Old Testament here as a source of endurance and encouragement. But why? What was the testimony of the scriptures? Well, from Genesis to Malachi, there are really two great themes that weave their way through the ages. First, we are immensely sinful. Over and over again, the people of God sinned against him. Even the great patriarchs, the great sort of founders of the faith, were flawed and sinful people. Think about Abraham, who passed his wife off as his sister and slept with a servant. Uh, Isaac played favorites with Esau and Jacob. Jacob stole his brother's birthright. Moses sinned mightily in the desert and didn't get to enter the promised land as a result of it. Joshua uh, messed up with Gibeon, as we saw uh, a few months ago. Saul didn't follow the Lord. David slept with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. Solomon loved foreign wives and ended up leaving, essentially falling into disrepute and ending up in disgrace. And even some of the prophets, right, the ones that received the very word of God weren't all that great. Elijah was kind of a grump and Jonah, I mean Jonah, right, openly rebellious. And so the Old Testament puts us in a posture of humility and need. We get through reading it, and we know that we have no chance of righteousness on our own. We simply are unable to choose righteousness because we love our sin far too much. And thus, we have no chance to see harmony on our own. We know that we have no chance to see harmony on our own. And we also know that we deserve what? We deserve judgment and wrath and destruction. We deserve to be isolated and alone without any hope. Ephesians 2.12 says that remember that you are at that time, which is before Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's us without Christ. And we deserve wrath. 
In fact, it would be right and just for the Lord to give us wrath. In fact, he would be glorified if that happened to us. I don't think we can overstate the gravity of our situation in our sin. It's really, really bad. And yet through it all, the other great theme is that God has proved to be gracious and, um, and faithful to his idolatrous and sinful people again and again. If nothing else, our series in Joshua hammered home that God is always, always faithful to fulfill his promises. And so... What does that put us in? Where does that put us? It puts us in a position to be beggars, hoping in the unlikely promises of God, of, of, of God promising that he would find it in himself to show us grace and mercy. We don't deserve that, yet he has promised us that. And so we sort of hope against hope almost, hope against the odds that the Lord will actually do this because he probably actually shouldn't, right? Other than the fact that he has said that he would. And so it puts us in a posture of humility before God, and it also puts us in a posture of humility when it comes to other people too. When we really get a good look at our position, our posture, when we get a good look at our own sin, we end up with really no legs to stand on when it comes to judging or condemning others. And so that posture of humility and neediness helps us with the command that is found in verse 5. But it also highlights where the power to accomplish the command comes from. And so verse 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement, that's the Old Testament, reminding us of our sin and his faithfulness, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And so the power of the gospel for us to live in harmony comes right there at the end of the verse, that clause at the end, in accord with Christ. Uh, it points us to, to Jesus to accomplish this sort of seemingly impossible task. We're sinful, we like to be right, and we don't like it when others disagree with us about just about anything, right? And so how are we to live together? By being in accord with Christ. And so the NIV actually puts it this way. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Now that really begs the question, what is the attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had? And so let's turn over to Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. There are the words that we're looking for. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the mind of Christ is to count others more significant than himself. And he looked not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And that's so very clearly seen in the gospel. And Paul points us to that in the next verses in Philippians. Christ Jesus, who through 
uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So do you see, do you see how Jesus accomplished the command in Romans 15, 5? to live in harmony with one another? Do you see the rights that Jesus, in fact, lays down to live in harmony with us? Do you see how Jesus bore with our failings and in our sin? Jesus didn't have to come down to be with us. He could have righteously stayed in heaven and left us in our sins. He would have been glorified in our just and right destruction and judgment. And Jesus certainly didn't have to bear with his sinful and somewhat dense disciples who fought incessantly and were slow to understand his teaching. And at the end, Jesus absolutely had the right to live. Right? He was perfect. He did not deserve to die. He didn't have to die. He was sinless and perfect, and yet he loved us to the uttermost, to the very end. He didn't consider anything, even the giving up of his life, to be too much to get you and me. He didn't consider himself as being more significant than us. And let's pause and sort of think about that. That's wild to think about. The creator, the God of the universe, considered his mere creatures, which came from dust and dirt, to be more significant than himself. Think about the love that he has set upon us. Think about the magnitude of the suffering that he bore that he might win for us life. That's the wonder of the gospel. And that fits with the overall context with our passage. Romans 14 is all about refusing to pass judgment on others and taking care to avoid putting stumbling blocks before your weaker brothers. It is all about, in fact, laying down your rights for the sake of your brother. At the time, there were some Jewish Christians who did not feel like they were free to eat certain kinds of meat and other Christians who were living rightly in their Christian freedom by eating whatever they wanted. And that difference was a source of conflict, but it really shouldn't have been. The Christians who felt bound by their consciences were the weaker ones, but they shouldn't have judged their brothers exercising their freedoms. Even though they felt like they were wrong, they were to bear with the other side. And in the same way, the Christians living in their freedoms needed to bear with their weaker brothers by avoiding putting stumbling blocks before them. They needed to not look down with contempt on their weaker brothers. And they needed to meet them where they were by also abstaining from eating meat so as to avoid putting the stumbling block before their brother. And this is why Romans 15 starts with verse 1, with the obligation of the strong to bear with the weak. Christians ought to be looking to serve one another, to meet people right where they are, especially in their failings and weaknesses. And notice that the call isn't directed to the weak to get stronger, which it is, they are to get stronger, right? To live in their Christian freedom. Rather, it follows the pattern of the gospel. And what is the pattern of the gospel? It is of Jesus who is strong, giving up so much for the sake of being with the weak. And by the way, that's us, right? We're the weak ones in the gospel. 
in desperate need of grace, of someone to come down and meet us while we were yet in our sin, in our wrongness, in our rebellion, and our stubbornness. And it's in the midst of sin, right there in the midst of sin, that grace is given. And so as we look at the call upon our lives in 2021, we are to bear with one another in Christ, for Christ has borne with us. Okay, so we see what we are to do and the fact that Christ has already done it. But how does Jesus dying for my sin enable me to love that person over there that makes me so angry? You might say, Frank, don't you get how wrong they are? Don't you get that they're asking me to do something that they don't have the right to ask me to do? Don't you get that those people over there don't care about minorities or prejudices? Don't you get that those people over there are brainwashed by the mainstream media? How far do I have to go? What's the next thing going to be? Don't you see the slippery slope? And to all of that, which I've heard in the past year, I say that that posture, that, that posture of asking, how far do I have to go? is not Christ-like. Christ didn't ask what would be next. Christ didn't worry that people would take a mile if you, got it, if you gave an inch. No, Christ loved us to the end, and that's our call. Again, it goes back to that posture, right, that we talked about. Do we have a humble attitude because of our sin? And then when the gospel comes, do we have the same perspectives and posture as Jesus has? Do we conform ourselves or are we being conformed to the image of our Savior? Are we becoming more Christ-like? Are we laying down what is our right for the sake of our brother? And so, friends, when we look at all these objections, at the heart of them is an insistence on what we believe is right and just. And there is a place for that. But not at the cost of your brother. Those people there over there are wrong and it's too much for me to go over there and love them where they are. That's how we feel. But the gospel doesn't insist on people seeing their sin before Jesus goes to them. Jesus meets them right in their sin, saves them, and then calls them to faith and repentance. Then after he has met them, he gently calls them to turn from their wrongness, to turn from their rebellion and turn unto that which is righteous and true and strong. That's the point of grace. It comes to the unworthy, to the sinful, to the needy, in the midst of their shame, sin, need, and wrongness. Grace goes to people that are wrong, not the people that, go, that are right. Which brings us to how the gospel enables us to do all of this. You see, when we extend grace and forgiveness, we get to embody Christ. We get to embody the gospel to those around us. Our brothers and sisters in Christ get to see Jesus coming after them in us as we live in harmony together. And it's a glorious thing to behold. And let me give you an example. For instance, I got a call last week that alerted me to the fact that I had sinned against uh, a good friend of mine. And this friend called me and told me how I had wronged her and her family. And she didn't come in anger, in bitterness or contempt. She came with forgiveness. 
and a desire to restore our relationship. And she actually said that she was a little bit worried about how I would react. But it's really hard to be angry with when your sister in Christ comes with such care and with a heart for harmony and reconciliation. And it was clear that she wanted to maintain the relationship more than she wanted to be vindicated, more than she wanted to make me pay for my sins, which was well within her rights because I had sinned against her. She could have stayed angry. She could have made me pay and been right. And yet, what happens when she comes in grace? I not only feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but I also feel the call of Christ to see the grace that is being extended to me. And I hope that she looks back on that conversation as an encouragement in her own faith. You see, when we exercise our faith in this way, when we embody the gospel by giving grace to those who don't deserve it, like me, right? I didn't deserve it. We get a taste of what it was like for Jesus to give grace to us. But costly and difficult as it is to extend grace because it hurts and often feels unfair because that's exactly what it is. It is unfair. It is a small comparison to what it was like for God to extend grace to us. And so, friends, the gospel enables us to do hard things precisely because doing those hard things gives us a window into a much larger love that we have already experienced. We who have been loved much love much in return. And so really the question isn't, how much do I have to love my brother or sister in Christ? The question is, what is my view of the immeasurable love of God for me? Because when I see my salvation for the bigness that it is, right? How big is my salvation? If it's really big, I understand that I have been forgiven much, and so it is easier to forgive much in return. How big is the gospel in my life? And this is how harmony is seen and encouraged in the church. There is no harmony without forgiveness. And there is no forgiveness without the gospel. And we get a better view of just how wondrous the gospel is as we forgive and give grace and live in harmony by laying down our lives as Christ did for us. It is for our benefit and our good to live in harmony with one another, to have the same attitude of mind as Christ, which is to see others as more significant than ourselves. When we have a posture of humility and a big gospel and a big salvation, we are driven to meet people right where they are in their sin, because that's what Jesus did for us. Plus, this is written for believers. Christ has already done what you need to do. He has already paid for their transgression against you, for their failure, for their weakness. And where he has, has he done that? He's done that on the cross, of course. He has definitively declared there on the cross that I love this person. And so in Christ, I am united to that brother or sister over there that drives me nuts. But I love them with a love that never fades because Christ loves them too. Now, there's a need for wisdom too. There are cases where forgiveness and restoration shouldn't occur as closely together as my reconciliation with my friend last week. 
In cases of abuse and long histories of hurt, the command to live in harmony with your abuser is really, really hard. It's really, really difficult. But while we believe that forgiveness should be extended, repentance and restoration happen over time. Harmony is seen in having the same attitude of mind as Christ, who never took for granted the gravity of sin. He saw, we see that in the garden, right, as he agonizes over the cost that sin requires, nor its consequences. And so remember that repentance isn't just saying sorry. There's a long, hard road to demonstrate the genuineness of repentance and to see the fruit of that true repentance. It requires us sinners not only to turn away from that which is sinful, but also to turn unto and pursue righteousness and restoration. That means that we chase after reconciliation, that we jump through as many hoops as it takes to show that we have turned our backs on sin in that particular way. Those hoops are meant to demonstrate our desire for righteousness. It sometimes means reparations. Sometimes it means truly cutting off a temptation and demonstrating that over time. And true repentance wants things to be set right no matter the cost. And it is willing to pay that cost. And it is demonstrated over time. We see that trust takes time. Trust takes time to repair. And true restoration and reconciliation will thus take time. And this means that we can live in harmony with one another while we work toward restoration. We're not blindly saying that we have to gloss over sinful patterns of hurt and abuse. Rather, we are saying that we ought to be wise in those special circumstances, testing and confirming that we are of the same mind and attitude in Christ. And so Christ looks at abusers and calls them to repentance. Christ calls them to turn from their sin and be restored. And so our desire is that abusers so thoroughly turn from their grievous sins that we would be able to embrace them and rejoice over their sanctification. And that desire for transformation means that we don't get to write anyone off. Even those who have been excommunicated, even those people who persist in their sin. Our heart is to reflect that of Christ while not being foolish in allowing sinners to stay in a pattern of habitual and grievous sin. It's not loving to allow them to continually sin against you. But we don't get to write them off. We need to continually pursue them, that they would turn from their sin. And we do that through the biblical prescribed process. And it's these cases of abuse and long-running brokenness, along with our usual sinfulness, that push us the cross. They make us yearn for the day that we will live in perfect harmony. They make us groan with all creation, desiring to be delivered from that sin that so easily entangles us. And thank God that that perfect harmony is coming. Even while we lament the disharmony among us that seems to persist, we can be encouraged by the glimpses of harmony that we see in the church. When we see people sacrificially serving each other, not insisting on their own way, that's the gospel encouraging us. When we see forgiveness being extended, that's the gospel encouraging us. When we see people of wildly different convictions, bearing with one another and loving each other, despite those differences, that's the gospel at work in our hearts. 
which brings us to worship and the praise of the gospel in verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we see the gospel working in our midst to bring about harmony and a Christ-like attitude of service towards others, we can't help but see God doing something we could never do on our own. The Old Testament and our very lives are strong testimonies of our own selfishness and brokenness. But the gospel doesn't just save us. It makes us like Jesus, having the same mind and attitude as him. It makes us love sinners and enables us to extend grace. And so the Lord is glorified by sinners being transformed by the power of his grace into people that reflect his son. That work of the gospel ought to produce praise within us. Praise not just for our salvation for, from sin, but also for our restoration and reconciliation with one another. I, think, I can thank God for my own salvation, but I ought to, also ought to thank God for your salvation as well. And the fact that your salvation enables us to love one another righteously, deeply, and in an abiding way right? Abiding way. We try to break ourselves apart every single day, and it is only by the grace of God that we're able to stick together. The gospel is not just restoring what was, is, the gospel is restoring what was broken in the garden, not just our relationship with God, but also our relationships with each other. Praise God that he has been faithful through the ages to his promises of redemption and restoration. And as we look forward to that glorious day, when we will live in perfect harmony, when we will be made perfectly like Jesus, inside and out, we will sing God's praises. Why? Because we will not only see harmony within our own hearts, but we will see harmony in our very flesh. For he alone is the author and perfecter of our faith. He alone is worthy of our praise. And so it seems only fitting Right, that we respond to this by singing, by worshiping, through prayer and through song. And so let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. But most of all, we thank you for your son, who has made us new through his death and resurrection. Lord, I pray that as we look around the room, as we sin against each other, that we would have the same attitude of mind as Christ has. That we would be desiring forgiveness, that we would love to the uttermost, that we would love to the end, that we would never give up and that we would never have contempt, but that we would see each other as needy sinners in need of grace. And Lord, I pray that you would root us in the unending fountains of your grace, that we might overflow in the abundance of your love for us, that we might love each other with that same love. Help us be one in you. Help us have humility and grace that we might live in harmony with one another. Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.